Well, good morning, everyone. How is everyone? Good. All right. So I'm Ben Hager. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, this weekend, I'm filling in for Brent. Uh, it's the Sunrise Marriage Retreat down in Estes Park. So Brent and some of the other staff are, are down there um, holding that event. And since they're down there talking about marriage, we're going to be up here talking about marriage. And uh, so, yeah, so let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for being so good. Father, we thank you for the blessings and the love and the grace that you shower onto us daily. And Father, I just want to thank you for our spouses. God, you gave them to us. And Father, we are forever grateful for that. And so, Lord, I I just pray, God, that this morning will be effective. God, that your word will come out loud and clear. And that you will help each and every one of us in our marriages and in our walk with you. Jesus, it's in your name. Amen. So, we're going to talk about a tactic called cover and move. And we're going to see how that relates to marriage. So, cover and move is a military tactic that soldiers use in battle. And I'm pretty sure most of us know what cover and move is. But what it is, is when the soldiers on the battlefield need to move locations, they'll designate a couple men to get up and move to a different spot. And right before those men get up and move, the other soldiers start shooting at the enemy. And while they're shooting... Those men get up and they move as fast as they can to the location that they need to be at. And then once there, they start shooting at the enemy. So the soldiers, the other soldiers, can also move to that location. And all throughout the battle, they leapfrog around the battlefield, gaining a better position to fight the enemy. Cover and move is the most fundamental tactic, perhaps the only tactic. Cover and move means teamwork. All elements within the greater team are crucial and must work together to accomplish the mission. In marriage, couples must break down walls, depend on each other, and understand who depends on who. In sports, we'll also see the cover-and-move tactic. We see it in football, basketball, hockey, soccer. They use it because it works. And it also works in marriage. Now, the concept of cover-and-move is quite simple. And there's three key elements for its success. And we're going to go over those today. Number one, you need to understand your enemy. Number two is communication. And number three is teamwork. So we're going to jump in and we're going to take a look at our enemy. We're going to try to understand who he is. So in marriage, somebody out here tell me, in marriage, who is your greatest enemy? Logan just pointed at Bethany. Yeah, you did. I saw it. I saw it. <laughs> um, but in marriage, our greatest enemy is Satan. 
he loves to tear apart marriages. So our greatest enemy is Satan, but who is Satan? In order to understand him, we need to know him. So we're going to jump in to Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 12. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. Red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue-green beryl, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis luzili, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from the place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire out from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground inside of all who were watching. All who knew you are appalled at your fate. You have come to a terrible end and you will exist no more. So as we just read in there, Satan was created by God. He was a cherub, an angelic guardian. Perhaps he was the strongest of all the angels. And he had access to God. It says in here that he was beautiful. He was the model of perfection. And he was also blameless. But then, because of his beauty, he was overcome by pride. And he sinned. And when that happened, God threw him out of heaven down to the earth where he now lives. And when that happened, Satan got mad. He got very mad. And why did he get mad? Because he wanted to be like God. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above the stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, Can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one who destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland? Is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? Do you hear what it said in there? I, I, I. Satan is all about Satan, and he is very selfish. 
And because of being cast out, he wants revenge. He wants revenge on God. And because we were made in the image of God, he hates us. He wants to take us out. You see, Satan knows what his fate is. He's not dumb. He can read. He's read the Bible before. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows that he's going to spend eternity in the pit of hell, and he wants to take each and every one of you with him if he can. Luckily, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that's not possible. But even though you're saved and you will spend eternity in heaven with God, Jesus still wants to take you out, or not Jesus, Satan wants to take you out. Jesus wants to save you. (laughs) Satan wants to take you out, and he wants to destroy you, and he wants to destroy your marriage. In John chapter 8, verses 44, Jesus said, He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who Satan is. He is a murderer and he is a liar. So what are Satan's tactics? We need to know these. We first read about them clear at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. We read about Satan's capabilities about how clever his lies are and, and, and his ability to come in between man and God and husband and wife. In the Garden of Eden, for a while, it was perfect. You see, God put Adam and Eve in there and he gave them, gave them a command. He said, you can eat any fruit you want except the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And everything was going good. And then Satan came in. And Satan, disguised as a serpent, came up to Adam and Eve. And he lied to him and he said, Did God really say that? Did, did he really tell you that, that you can't eat that fruit? Well, I mean, it's not that big a deal. You know, and plus, God wants you to be smart. He wants you to have knowledge of good and evil. He wants you to be like him. So it's okay if you eat that fruit. God won't care. He understands. And Adam and Eve listened to Satan. And they took that fruit and they ate it. They disobeyed God and instantly sin entered into humanity. And then after that, God came down to the garden. And he found Adam and Eve. And he asked Adam, Adam, have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to? And Adam replied, well, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, so I ate it. And then God turned to Eve and he said, Eve, what have you done? And she replied, I was deceived by the serpent. Do you see what happened there? Instantly, Adam laid blame on Eve, and Eve laid blame on the serpent. Neither of them took ownership of their actions. They pointed their finger. They were filled up with pride, and they didn't want to lay blame on themselves. 
No, they pointed like that. Oh, it was, it was her. It was him. Doesn't that sound familiar? We've all done that. Each and every one of us have. And that's not good. S- Satan came in, deceived them with lies. Lies so clever that they sounded like the truth. And he caused sin. All because of just a little bit of twisting. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a minute. Another one of Satan's tactics is found in Job chapter 1. God asked Satan where he came from. Satan said, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that is going on. Satan is patrolling the earth. He is watching everything. He is watching and waiting. Just like a lion hiding in the grass, waiting for his prey to not be paying attention. And then at the right moment, bam, he pounces and he attacks and he devours. That's what Satan does. He's watching us. He's studying us. He's looking for our weaknesses to use them against us. Stress, fear, lack of confidence, anger, low self-esteem. He finds those in us and he uses them against us. He uses them to his advantage. Sometimes Satan comes in and he attacks fast and furious. Other times he comes in and he just pecks at us. Slowly, just pecking, just to be a little bit of an irritant. For years, pecking until finally we crack. Like I just mentioned, Satan loves to twist scripture. He loves to use scripture against us. He'll take scripture and he'll change it just a little bit so it sounds like the truth. We've seen this when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. He tried to use that tactic on Jesus. And it didn't work on Jesus. But if we're not careful, it works on us. So what are Satan's goals? They're simple. And that's found in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to steal our joy, kill our faith, and destroy us, destroy our marriages. And if Satan can take out the marriage, the kids come easy. So how do we fight back? How do we protect our families? How do we protect our marriages? We do that by covering and moving. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The key to fighting back is through communication. Communicating is covering. Open up your Bibles with me or, or look up here on the screen. We're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 25. And it says, So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. For we are all parts of the same body. 
And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And I want to take one of these verses out for just a second. I know that there's some people in here who haven't been married for very long. And there's one verse that I really, really want to share with you. It is so important. If there's any verse that, that you get out of, this, out of today, let this be the one. This goes for all of us. That is Ephesians 4, verse 26. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. We're going to get into arguments with our spouses, and we're going to get angry with them. But we have to follow this verse. Go to bed, if, if you want, and lay there. And I don't care if it takes all night. If you stay up till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning communicating your differences and resolving them, that's good. That's what it takes. Do not go to bed angry because you will just wake up even angrier. And that gives a foothold for Satan. And he will attack. No matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes, resolve your issues with your spouse that night. Don't give Satan any ammunition. Because as we know, every marriage is going to go through seasons of hardships. And most of them are due to a lack of communication. So husbands, I'm going to take a few minutes, and, and I'm, I'm mainly going to talk to you for now. Husbands, you have to protect your wife. That is what God created you to do. He created us men to be the leaders of the family, to protect our family. And in that, we have to communicate well. We have to communicate in a way that our wife understands. You see, God created man and woman differently. Even though we were created in his image, we are completely different, and especially in the way that we communicate. Women, take note of this. You already know it, but, but just take note. Men, let's face the facts. We do not multitask very well. I'm going to say we don't multitask at all at some time. Just this morning, I was going through this sermon real quick, making little changes. My wife was trying to talk to me, and I finally just looked up at her, and I said, I can't multitask. And she just smiled and walked away. She knows. <laughs> but when, when our wives are wanting to have a, a conversation with us, and, and we're busy doing something, whether that's reading or, or whatever we're doing, it's probably best if we stop what we're doing and give our full attention to our wives so we can hear what they're saying. Because if, if we don't give our full attention, if we're not making eye contact, those words are going in one ear and right out the other. And so wives, if your husband is really busy and you want to talk to him, 
it'd probably be good if you would wait till he's done. Because like I said, he's not listening to you anyway. <laughs> That's just the way it is. It's the way we're created. <laughs> but women, women can multitask. You women are great at it. You can do two, three, four things at a time and still have a conversation. I don't get it. We can't. Men, men can't do that. The way men communicate, guys, <laughs> there's two things that we can't do. When we're talking to our wives, we can't mumble or grunt, okay? Our wives are not mind readers. She does not understand mumbling and grunting. Men, we do. We could all get in our truck right now in our, together, and we could go down the highway, and, and we could come up on McDonald's, and, and as we get close, all we'd have to do is look over, give the slightest eye contact to each other, and give a grunt. Mmm. That means hungry, food, good. And, and instantly, just by instinct, we would pull into McDonald's and get something to eat. Because we can communicate that way. We know what each other are thinking. We don't have to use very many words. But women do. Women, like I said, they're not mind readers. They don't understand grunts. And they communicate by using a lot more words than, than what we do. So we have to pay attention to what they're saying. And we have to communicate in a way that they completely understand. Marriage, like everything in life, has complexities. Simplifying as much as possible is crucial to success. When plans go wrong, which they will, complexity compounds issues that can spiral out of control into complete disaster. Plans must be communicated simple, clear, and concise. Husbands, if your wife doesn't understand you, you have failed. Your wife hasn't failed because she doesn't understand. You have failed because you didn't explain yourself well enough. And wives, the same goes for you. If your husband doesn't understand you, you need to talk in a way that he does understand. In those times, we need to go back and we need to fully explain ourselves. And we need to encourage questioning. And there's one thing about questions that, that, we, that we completely need to understand. There are no stupid questions. If your spouse asks a question that you think is dumb, don't look down on them. They're not dumb. Guys, your wife is, is smart, super smart. I'm going to say our wives are smarter than what we are. So encourage questioning, and that goes both ways. Questions are good. Questions are what start conversations and what influence conversations. Asking questions and answering questions is how we learn about each other. It's how we build our marriages stronger. So always be asking questions. Because in marriage, we have to be on the same page at all times. And men, like I said before, you are the leaders of the family. So you have to talk. You have to talk well to your spouse. But not, no, not only are you the leaders, you are also the spiritual leaders of the family. And I want to give you a statistic here. 
about, about a family um, coming to Christ. If a child is the first person in the family to accept Christ, the rest of the family will follow 3.5% of the time. If the mother is the first one to come to Christ, the rest of the family will come to Christ 17% of the time. But when the father is the first one to come to Christ, the rest of the family follow 93% of the time. Those are massive numbers, men. Your job is to be the spiritual leader of the family. Those numbers speak for themselves. And one of the strongest qualities in a marriage, one of the things that we strive for the most is trust. Trust is massive in marriage. So don't do anything to lose your spouse's trust. Men, be a godly man. Be a one-woman man. And love your wife like Jesus does. Love her unconditionally. Work hard, pray hard, and love harder. Now, wives, I'm going to talk for you for a minute. Wives, it is very, very important to trust your husband to lead. Like we read in the Bible, clear back in Genesis, God created women to be man's helper. Wives, the way God designed it, you are to help your husband to lead. Now, I know that, that us men, we're not perfect at all. And we have faults and we have weaknesses. We have weaknesses that you women don't. There's a lot of areas that, that you're stronger in than we are. And in those areas, that's where you need to help. Help your husband in his weaknesses. Help him to be stronger. Help him to lead better. Help him to be the man of the house. As the saying goes, behind every successful man is a strong woman. You see, as we read in the Bible, since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, it's women's instincts to control their man. This happened when sin entered into the equation. Women, at times, want to wear the pants. And this isn't good. When this happens, it causes fights and divisions and a huge lack of trust and respect. Women, please, don't strip your man of his manhood. Build him up. Stand beside him and help him. Our society for the last 20, 30 years has been doing a really good job of emasculating men. Wives, don't do that. You want a man who is strong, a man who is brave, who is committed to you. You want a man who can protect you and support you and the kids. And it's your job to help him do that. Wives, I'm not taking anything away from you. We know how strong you are. We know that you are fully capable to lead. 
but it's not God's way. It's God's way to help and to love and to work together as a team. And we're going to get into teamwork a little later on. So women, when it comes to communicating with your man, you need to tell your husband your wants and your needs and your expectations of him. And make him understand those. And whatever you do, don't grunt at him. That'll only confuse him coming from you. Okay? Men, we can grunt at each other, but wives, don't, don't grunt. It, it's bad. And women, there's times in order to get into our thick skulls, you have to use really small words that we understand. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's just the way it is. So communication goes both ways, and it's vital. So keep it simple. Wives, you need your husband just as much as he needs you. Because there's going to be times in the marriage when Satan attacks. And when those fiery arrows are coming in on you, you have to do something. And in those times, that's when you have to cover and move. You have to make a plan, know your job, and execute. You have to cover your spouse. And that goes both ways. So in a marriage, what does covering look like? Covering is shooting back. Not with bullets, but with love and humility. With gentleness and forgiveness. Covering is saying, I love you. It's kissing goodnight. It's waking up with a smile in the morning. Covering is being romantic and caring. It's putting food on the table and money in the bank. Covering is using encouraging words like, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're strong, you're sexy, your beard is amazing. Covering is building each other up. And covering is protecting. It's protecting so that your spouse can get into position to move. Covering is also giving time and space. Men, let your wives relax for a night. Let her go take a bath. Cook dinner for her. Clean the house for her. Do the laundry. Do the dishes. Pastor Tom once told me that sex begins in the kitchen. So men, get in the kitchen. <laughs> Covering, it's also listening. It's being a shoulder to cry on. It's hugging. It's laughing. It's having fun. It's being young again. Covering can also mean that you have to put yourself in harm's way. There's times in marriage that you have to get up and put yourself out there, out in the open, in order to draw attention away from your spouse, in order to protect them and give them safety. And always remember, in marriage and in life, our strongest weapon is prayer. Covering is praying. Praying for your spouse and praying with your spouse. 
There's a saying that I absolutely love. The family that prays together stays together. And when one of you is covering, the other one has to move. That's how it works. Let's jump back into Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to back up a little bit to verses, uh, verse 21. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. You see, when we first believed in Jesus, he began to move in us. He began to move us. The Holy Spirit came inside of us and began to clean us from the inside out. Moving means making a change. And moving is crucial to marriage. It's changing. It's changing directions, changing locations. Moving is bettering your marriage, bettering your spouse, and bettering yourself. Many marriages fail because one or both spouses aren't willing to move, not willing to make a change, not willing to drop a bad habit. Many times, growing lazy. And you can't just sit there and expect things to change. You have to move. But there's one thing that we all need to understand. You can't change your spouse, and your spouse can't change you. Only God can do that. But through prayer and encouragement and covering, we can help our spouses to move. To move to be better. To move in a positive direction. And the thing about it, the thing about moving is we can't just cover. A lot of times we'll pray together. And and I'm not meaning this is a bad thing. This is a good thing. But if all we're doing is talking and, and, and saying nice little words every now and then, we're not really growing. Okay? You can't just cover. You have to continually move or you're both going to get hit and you're both going to get taken out. Cover and move. Leapfrog. Bouncing all around. Always covering and always moving. You see, the problem is with us humans is we're creatures of habit. We, we fall into a routine and we get comfortable. And as the years go by... That becomes boring. Our marriages can become boring. If we allow it, the fire will grow cold. And I pray that that never happens. But if it does happen, it's time to get up and pour gas on the fire. It's time to move. It's time to make a change. Moving is wanting things to get better. It's constantly working on your marriage. Moving is being fun. It's being fun again. It's being spontaneous. It's going on dates. It's giving gifts. It's falling in love again. Moving is staying 
in love. It's learning from our mistakes so that we don't make them again. Moving is growing up. It's being responsible. It's having accountability. Moving is making our spouses happy and changing for the better. And moving is getting into a better position to cover our spouse so that they can move. And it's trusting that our spouse has our back. Like the Bible said, strip off your old way of life and put on your new nature. You see, it's like working out. If you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, it's time to get up and move. If you want to get in shape, lose some weight, look better, feel better, be healthy, you have to move. You can't sit on the couch and expect things to happen. But just like working out, there's going to be some pain with it. Working out means that you're breaking down those muscles. You're stretching those muscles. And it's going to hurt. And there's times in marriage where making a move, making a change, is going to hurt a little bit. Because let's face it, none of us like to change. But in order to have a healthy, strong relationship, change at times is necessary. So we have to embrace that change. We have to embrace that pain because the results that come from that are well worth it. We have to communicate and move. Like I said before, make a plan, know your job, and execute. Talking about moving, I want to give you just a, just a, a brief uh, story about Laura and I and, and our marriage um, a few years ago. When I first came to Christ, I was on fire. I mean, I was moving so fast. I was moving as fast as I possibly could trying to gain as much knowledge about God as I possibly could. I would read the Bible at work when I had time. And then I'd come home and I'd get my chores done. And then I'd go inside, sit on the couch, and all night long I would read the Bible. And I would leave Laura to cook and to clean and to take care of the girls. Because all I wanted to do was learn and move. And I was loving how fast I was going. And I thought at the time that I was doing what God wanted me to do. Well, as this continued, Laura became very frustrated at me. And I became very frustrated at her. Laura wanted me to get up off the couch, quit studying the Bible, and help her around the house. And I wanted her to get on the couch and study the Bible with me. We weren't working together. And as this continued, it really started to affect our marriage. It, it, it really started to divide us. And, and some time went by, and, uh, 
a member of one of our life groups at the time, a guy that I completely admire. I love him. He has helped Laura and I out probably more than anyone else in our walk with Christ and in our marriage. He noticed what was going on. And, and finally, at one of our life groups, Laura ended up breaking down and, and, and getting the ladies, and, and they went out and, and, and talked, and um, us men talked. And then that next day, I remember, my friend came over to my house, and he got me, and he took me outside, and he sat me down on his tailgate. And he had the come-to-Jesus talk with me, and, and I mean, he gave it to me. And my friend showed me where I was messing up in my marriage. He showed me how I was hurting Laura, how I wasn't being the man that Laura needed to be. But I'm going to be honest, I was confused. I mean, my marriage was in a bad spot, and I didn't know how to fix it. I mean, there I was. We, Laura and I were going to church every weekend. We were in a life group once a week. Two or three times a week, I was going to the pastor's houses, having Bible studies with them. I mean, we, we were living from the outside looking in that perfect Christian life. But on the inside, it was a wreck. Because I wasn't being the man who Laura needed me to be. Yeah, I was studying God's word. That's all I was doing. I wasn't living it. You see, in the Bible, God tells us to love him and love our neighbor. Laura is my neighbor. And at that time, I wasn't doing both. Because I wasn't doing what God was telling me in here. And that was to love my wife and to put her first. After that conversation I had with my friend, I came inside and I grabbed Lara and we went to the bedroom and sat down on the bed and we talked. We talked for a long time. We cried together. But after that conversation, we started to move. We started to change things. We started to pray together again. And we made a plan together. I finally realized that, like I said, I wasn't the man who Laura needed me to be. And Laura helped me to be that man. She told me her wants and her needs and her expectations of me. I was praying for God to change Laura and for God to move Lara as fast as what I was moving. But in reality, I needed to pre- be praying for God to change me, to move me, to slow me down, to instead of just reading his word, living his word, and being the man that he created me to be. So at times, moving is actually slowing down. Moving is going back to where you were. Going back to being the man that your wife needs you to be. Going back to being the wife your man needs you to be. After that conversation, like I said, Laura and I begin to plan. We begin to pray. We begin to really work on our marriages. 
and we begin to work as a team. You see, teamwork is vital to a marriage. I believe that we all know that. We all know that teamwork is the lifeblood of marriage. And teamwork is the backbone to cover and move. Without teamwork, it doesn't work. This is the definition of teamwork. The collaborative effort of a group to achieve a common goal or to complete a task in the most effective and efficient way. God created man and woman to work together as a team. I want to go back almost all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. And I want to read you what it says, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man was asleep, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Two become one. And in teamwork, as we know, It takes two. And if one fails, the team fails. So I'm not going to beat teamwork up. I think we pretty much all understand that. But I do want to say this. Teamwork takes commitment and communication. We have to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. And we need to hold each other accountable. We need to build our spouses up and never put our spouses down. I I, want to say that again. Do not ever put your spouse down. That is one of my biggest pet peeves. It makes me so mad when I see 